Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Thank you very much, Dennis, and good morning, everybody. Lovely to be back at Communities in Control. If only they were. Uh, I want to share with you this morning what I think are the two most significant facts about contemporary Australia. <clears throat> the first is that we are a society... And by the way, we could be talking about most Western societies. This is not... Most of it is not uniquely Australian, but let's focus on us. Uh, the first of the facts is that we are a society in the grip of a mental health crisis. Because it's silent and invisible, we don't seem to have fully comprehended the scale of the crisis. Beyond Blue told us that last year, two million Australians, two million Australians were suffering from an anxiety disorder and another two to three million were suffering depression and other forms of mental illness uh, and that any of us, all of us should expect uh, that in the course of the lifetime one in three Australians will experience some kind of mental health uh, issue. The darkest shadow cast by our mental health crisis is, of course, suicide. Uh, the youth suicide rate has been falling, um, which has been very good news over the last 10 years or so, but not so for our national suicide rate. Uh, and just to put a number on it, every year between 65 and 70,000 Australians attempt suicide. Not all those attempts result in loss of life. But just imagine, that's the population of a city like Albury. Imagine between 65 and 70,000 Australians every year deciding they've had enough and would like to check out. So that's, that's the first fact. The second fact is that we have become a more socially fragmented society than at any previous time in our history. Now, social fragmentation is really the central theme of what I want to talk about this morning. Um, but you have to justify a statement like that, more socially fragmented than at any time in our history. What, what's the evidence for that? What are the signs? Well, let me remind you, we've, we've talked, some of you have been at previous sessions where we've talked about some of these issues. But let me just quickly remind you of some of the things that have led to a more socially fragmented Australia. Our households are shrinking. The average Australian household now contains just 2.5 people. Are there any 0.5s <laughs> in the audience? Um, we've reached the point where, in the last census, uh, it turned out that every fourth household in Australia contains just one person. And the rate of shrinkage is such that within the next 15 years or so, it'll be one household in three containing just one person. Now, that number of single-person households does not mean that in every third household there's going to be a lonely person. 
Not everyone who lives alone feels lonely. Some people who live alone absolutely love it uh, and experience it as a symbol of their freedom and independence. They say you can whistle out of tune and you can watch daytime television and you can eat baked beans straight out of a can. There's no one there to criticise you. And if you want to socialise, you know where to find people. Uh, but many others, of course, don't experience single living uh, as such a positive thing, uh, whether because of bereavement or divorce or some other uh, factor. They do experience living alone as uh, edging them towards feelings of social isolation. I'll say more about that in a moment. Uh, so that's one, that's one big demographic change that's tending to fragment us. Uh, the fact that between 35 and 40% of contemporary marriages are ending in divorce is another fragmenting factor. By the way, notice with all of these factors, this is not something that's being done to us. This is something we're doing to ourselves. And each of these things, are, most of the factors on the list are things that we want. Um, people who are divorced want to be divorced. Uh, they don't want the divorce rate to fall or it might have left them out. Um, but when you look at the cumulative effect of all of these things, you see they're pushing us in a particular direction. Uh, but with that level of uh, divorce and, and relationship breakdown more generally, uh, we're obviously talking about huge social disruption, not just for the couples who are splitting, uh, not just for their families and extended families, but also for their friendship circles and for the neighbourhoods and communities that they were part of as a couple. And now that's all changed. Uh, one of the things that's changed, of course, as a result of that is the high proportion of dependent kids who now live with just one of their natural parents. It's a million dependent kids in Australia who now live with just one of their natural parents, and half of them, 500,000, once a week or once a fortnight, are involved in a mass migration from the home of the custodial uh, parent to the home of the other parent hugely, even when it's well managed, it's hugely disruptive for all concerned. While we're talking about kids, I should also mention our low birth rate because I think that's relevant to the uh, problem of social fragmentation. Any of you who are parents will know that when you move into a new neighbourhood, it's usually the kids who connect first. Kids get to know the other kids uh, in, in the street or in the, on the school bus or in the playground and gradually the families get to know each other or the kids are playing sport together and the families meet on the sideline, etc. Uh, kids act like a kind of social lubricant. So when, as at present, we're producing relative to total population the smallest generation of children Australia has ever produced, um, with a birth rate around about 1.7 babies per woman compared with a replacement level of 2.1. Uh, obviously, that social lubricant is in shorter supply uh, than ever. We have to compensate for that to some extent, and of course we do. You can see how people are compensating if you just look at the declining birth rate compared with the dramatic increase in the level of pet ownership in Australia. Uh, and we know that many of those pets are child substitutes. You don't have to imagine that. You can, you can conclude it from the names that people are giving their pets. 
Um, I recently met a dog called Ian, and uh, I don't know why I mean, you're laughing. I was laughing when I, or trying not to laugh when I met the dog. Um, it seems such a strange name for a dog, but I know I know a Fiona and I know a Harry, uh, so why not why not Ian? The problem, of course, is then trying to remember is Ian the owner or the dog. Um, anyway. So that, that works as a compensation for some people, but perhaps not to the extent that children used to. Uh, other things that are both transforming and fragmenting us, we've become a more mobile population in two senses. Uh, we're moving house more than ever. On average, once every six years, Australians are moving house, exactly the same as in America. And of course, we're more mobile in the sense that with virtually universal car ownership, uh, we are coming and going in our little sealed in our little capsules. Uh, you see your neighbour's car arriving or leaving and you wave. You assume that your neighbour is driving. But that's not the same as having a chat on the footpath, is it? Uh, we're more busy than we've ever been. Notice how busyness has now been enshrined as a virtue in our society. We, it's even changed the way we greet each other. We say, how are you going, Dennis? Busy? as though, are you dead or are you busy? Uh, uh, if, any, if any of you have retired or know people who've retired, you know that in contemporary Australia, it's absolutely compulsory for retired people to say, I'm so busy, I don't know how I ever found time to go to work. Well, all this busyness in uh, the, the rise of the two-income household, in most households with two adults, uh, they're both working at least part-time. The consequence of that, of course, is we just have less time and less energy available for the neighbourhood, for maintaining contacts with neighbours and, uh, and other members of our uh, local community. Uh, then, of course, there's the information technology revolution, which you might have thought should go on the top of this list. But clearly... Uh, we are now, particularly in the last 10 years, and, and we've only had the smartphone for 10 years, but look how it's changed our lives in that, in that period, and before it, of course, the whole internet phenomenon, personal computers. Um, it all promises to make us more connected than ever before, yet it's a paradox, isn't it? Because while it does connect us at one level, it makes it easier than ever for us to stay apart from each other. Uh, we're getting used to the idea of communication happening without human presence. And, and in terms of the sweep of human history, that is deeply weird. It's not surprising that there's so much research now piling up, telling us that particularly among young, heavy users of social media, the more time they spend with the screen, the more lonely and anxious they are likely to feel because there's something, given the nature of our species as social beings, there's something deeply wrong with the idea that we could communicate with people or feel as though we're part of a community where we're not seeing each other. We're not gesturing to each other. We're not kissing or hugging or touching each other. We're not picking up tone of voice, rate of speech, posture, gestures all those things that contribute such richness to the experience of uh, human interaction when we communicate. And of course, courtesy of the IT revolution, we're redefining the idea of personal identity. 
We're even redefining our views on privacy. Uh, we're coming to realise that most of the social media platforms are actually surveillance media as well as communication media. It's as though we've willingly invited Big Brother into our lives, courtesy of Facebook and other uh, social media platforms. Well, uh, if you look at all those things, as I said a moment ago, if you look at all those kinds of changes that have been reshaping our way of life, it's pretty clear what the cumulative effect is. It means that local neighbourhoods and communities are likely to be less stable and less cohesive than they used to be. People are likely to feel less comfortable. They are more likely to say, as has become a cliche in our major metropolitan areas, we don't know our neighbours. What a weird thing for human beings to say. I was talking to someone in Sydney, Sydney recently who lives in a terrace house and he said, I, I sleep uh, with my head up against the common wall between me and the next terrace and I know someone is sleeping just on the other side of that wall and I don't know who it is. Never met them. It's very strange. I did, I did suggest there was a simple solution uh, to the problem of not knowing them. But obviously when people feel uh, more disconnected from each other, they also begin to feel less trustful of each other and less confident even in moving around their own neighbourhood. And of course this also means that the more disconnected we feel, the more fragmented we feel, the more we fuel our sense of being individuals rather than members. Rampant individualism is one of the inevitable consequences of this increased social fragmentation. Now, I said I was going to present you with two facts about contemporary Australia, the, the mental health crisis, in particular the epidemic of anxiety and uh, the increased unprecedented level of social fragmentation, but I'm sure you've worked out that I'm really just talking about one fact. These two things are so inextricably linked to each other that they're not really two facts at all. It's like two sides of the one coin. Heads, we become more socially fragmented. Tails, we become more anxious. Now, uh, there are, of course, many causes of anxiety in individual cases. Individual people might experience anxiety over job insecurity or rent stress or a relationship breakdown or loss of faith or addiction to an IT device or whatever it might be. Even a concern about the future of the planet might provoke feelings of anxiety in some people. But when you're looking at a society like ours and you're observing an epidemic of anxiety, you have to look below all of those individual triggers at what sort of societal changes are happening to create such an epidemic. And here's where it seems to me social fragmentation looks like the chief culprit for the very obvious reason that we humans are born to belong. Uh, we are social animals like most other species on the planet. We are social animals who need each other who can only exist safely and sanely in human communities. Cut us off from the herd and our anxiety level will rise. The, the most interesting thing about you and me is the differences between us. That's what we always find really interesting. 
But actually, the most significant thing about you and me is our common humanity. That's a far bigger fact about us than any of the trivial things that divide us or distinguish us from each other. We are all part of the same thing. We're communitarians at heart. It's in our DNA. We need groups, herds, tribes to belong to, to nurture and sustain us and protect us, but also to give us our sense of identity. There's a lot of nonsense talked about personal identity as though you could discover who you are by looking in the mirror or gazing at your navel or rushing off on a weekend retreat to find yourself. Don't ever go on a weekend retreat to find yourself. Save your money. Uh, that's not where you'll find yourself. You find yourself by looking into the faces of the people who love you. Look into the faces of the people you work with. Look into the faces of people who need you. That's who you are. Uh, we, we are defined by our social context. So when people are cut off from the human herd, when they don't have that sense of being integrated with a neighbourhood or a community, obviously anxiety rises. Uh, why is solitary confinement the worst punishment we can inflict on prisoners in our criminal justice system? So the epidemic of anxiety is not just something we note and say, oh boy, there's a bit of a mental health crisis, we'd better put more money into uh, the health budget for all of this. It's actually a clanging alarm bell alerting us to the fact that social fragmentation carries a very high price. When people feel socially isolated, that can easily morph into feelings of social exclusion and even alienation. A prominent American psychologist, and her words have been echoed both here and in Europe, but at the, at the conference of the, Australia, of the American um, uh, Medical, uh, uh, the American Psychological uh, Association last year, she said, social isolation is a greater threat to public health than obesity. Now, we know what a threat to public health obesity is. We haven't acknowledged the threat posed by social isolation, again, because it's silent and relatively invisible. So the tragedy of contemporary Australia, and most of Western society as well, but the tragedy is that we are not always living as if we need each other, though we obviously do. We're not always living as if our own health depends on the health of the communities that we belong to, though it does. And another tragic aspect of our present situation is that we're tending to look in the wrong place for solutions to our anxiety. The obsession with control, with certainty. Uh, who ever got certainty? Whose life was ever really under control? But we go in search of it when we're feeling anxious as though somehow that would fix it. That leads us into fundamentalism, whether in religion or in gender politics or in food fads or whatever it might be, people looking for simple uh, prescriptive certainties. Uh, it leads us into consumerism. If I could just buy more stuff, maybe that would make me feel better, get a little bit of a kick out of retail therapy. It leads us into nostalgia. Why can't we go back to the way it used to be? Well, we never can. All those are natural responses, but they all overlook what is the real answer to the problem of social fragmentation and its twin, 
heightened anxiety? And the real answer, I think, can be captured in just one simple but rather old-fashioned word, and the word is compassion. Now, I need to explain what I mean when I say compassion, because what I'm not talking about is uh, some sort of bleeding heart, do-gooding, emotional state that you can get into that makes you feel compassion towards individual people who have some particular need. The compassion that I'm talking about is a completely unemotional, a completely rational response to our understanding of the crisis that we are currently facing. It's a cool mental discipline that says we're all in this together. We won't survive unless we build up and nurture a thriving communities. Therefore, the only way for us to respond to each other is with kindness and respect. Uh, that's what compassion is. It's the decision to approach every encounter, especially encounters with people we don't particularly like and most particularly encounters with people that we disagree with, uh, with the determination that in spite of our disagreement, in spite of the lack of affection, we're all humans. We've got common humanity and therefore you're part of me and I'm part of you. Why wouldn't we treat each other kindly and with uh, respect even when we're in furious disagreement? Now, compassion adopted in that way has a double effect. It's got a personal and a social effect. The personal effect is that compassion is the great antidote to anxiety because, of course, compassion shifts the focus. And anxiety becomes a very self-absorbed state. You become preoccupied with your anxiety and you lose sight of the needs of people around you. Compassion says we'll keep shifting the focus onto the people around us who need us and nothing steadies the emotions like the knowledge that someone else needs us. But the social effect of compassion uh, is that compassion is it's kind of like the high-octane fuel that drives the machinery of social capital, the crucial ingredient in the life of any successful community, especially a local neighbourhood. In fact, I think if you want to assess the health of a society, the way to do it is to assess the health of its local neighbourhoods. If neighbourhoods, local communities aren't working, then society will be in an unhealthy state because, of course, the thing about the local community, about the neighbourhood, is that here is where we have to learn to get along with people we didn't choose to live with. It's okay with the family, it's lovely with your friends. Uh, even in your workplace, you're probably dealing with people who share your values and have similar uh, worldviews to yours. But in the neighbourhood, they can all be weird. Uh, they can have different religious beliefs from yours, different political views, different tastes in music, different ethnicity, different generations. All those sort of things are there and you're their neighbour. And if you have any sense of what it means to be a human being, you understand that your obligation is to behave like a neighbour towards all those people. Now, many of you are doing work that encourages the sense of neighbourhood uh, and therefore builds 
uh, uh, reduces the compassion deficit. It's sometimes done quite formally. Uh, many of you are probably already aware of a study that's just been completed in the UK uh, based on the town of uh, Froome in Somerset. Froome spelled F-R-O-M-E, but if you want to look it up, um, pronounce Froome. Um, some years ago, a GP in Froome came to realise that many of the health issues of her patients were connected to the fact that they were a bit socially isolated. And so she got together with the local council and a number of other community leaders in Froome, and together they launched something that sounds really clunky, but this is what they did. They launched the Compassionate Froome project. Now, uh, three years into that project, an evaluation was made of the effect of the Compassionate Froome initiative and what emerged was that across most health indicators, there had been positive improvements, but one in particular stood out as the most improbable um, health indicator, which was emergency hospital admissions. During this three-year period in Froome, emergency hospital admissions went down by 17%, while across the county of Somerset, emergency hospital admissions went up by 28%. And a palliative care physician uh, in Froome said, no other initiative that we've ever taken uh, has reduced emergency admissions across a population. Now, what was this extraordinary initiative? What was the brilliant, creative thing that they did in Froome under the uh, title of the Compassionate Froome Project? Well, they did form some little community groups uh, with particular expertise to help people who were managing health issues or financial issues, but that wasn't the main thrust of Compassionate Froome. The main thrust was reach out to your neighbours. Make sure you know everyone in your street. Be particularly alert to people who are living alone. If you don't see them for a couple of days, uh, go and knock on the door, make sure they're okay. Get engaged in local activities. Join choirs, community gardens, book clubs, current affairs discussion groups, probus, men's sheds, anything that'll get you involved in a network uh, through the community. Uh, never pass someone in the street without smiling and saying hello. Don't stand at a bus stop with a stranger and ignore each other. Have a little conversation, even if it's only about the weather that might be the very moment when that person needed to be acknowledged to save them from feelings of alienation or despair. Give people the gift of listening when they need to talk to you. Not very radical, is it? Get to know your neighbours, say hello to people in the street, uh, join local community organisations. Well, it's worked brilliantly in Froome and of course it can work anywhere and is working in many parts of Australia who may not have used that label but are doing similar things. Now it's very easy to complain about the state of the nation and in particular, um, as, uh, as Dennis mentioned at the introduction, uh, about the state of politics, the state of education, uh, the state of our major institutions and the state of our rising income inequality which is dividing Australia in a way that is completely unprecedented in our social and economic history. Now, most of us can't have much effect on any of that, and it is very easy to wring our hands about the state of the nation 
uh, and in particular to dream of getting some leaders who will save us from whatever it is we think we need saving from. Uh, but at the moment, as part of our general loss of faith in institutions, we're pretty disillusioned about our leaders. And it's occurred to me that that might not be a really bad thing. Maybe at a time when we have lost faith in many of the institutions that we used to look to for leadership, and in particular to political leaders, it might dawn on us that actually the state of the nation does start in our street that we ourselves can transform gradually, street by street, community by community, the kind of place Australia is. Because when it comes to the character and the values of our society, quite apart from the national debt uh, or the problems of banks cheating on their customers or whatever it is, when it comes to the character and values of our society, who else is it up to apart from us? and our local communities. We can have a powerful influence on the state of the various communities we belong to and cumulatively that adds up to an influence on the state of the nation. Everyone knows how to act like a neighbour when there's a crisis, when there are bushfires or floods or storm or some other trauma or catastrophe. Uh, we all rush to each other's aid without so much as a backward glance. Wouldn't it be a tragedy if we lost the sense of our role as neighbours except when there's a crisis? Wouldn't it be a tragedy if we overlooked the fact that people need neighbours to act like neighbours when they're going, going about their ordinary daily lives? So if you think people aren't as friendly as they once were, we know what to do about that. If you're surprised that people don't smile and say hello when they pass, pass you in the street in a big city, we know what to do about that. Uh, you don't know your neighbours, we know what to do about that. And by the way, we shouldn't be worrying about whether any of this community development work that many of you are so brilliantly involved in, we shouldn't be worrying about whether this is making us feel better. Uh, the probability is that it will, because if we're part of a healthy, functioning community, that'll be good for our health as well. But don't worry about whether day by day you're feeling happier because you're involved in developing communities. Uh, if, you're, if you're really looking for something to worry about, worry about whether you gave someone your undivided attention when they needed it. Uh, worry about whether you really listened to someone when they had something they needed to tell you or whether you just pretended to listen. Worry about whether you apologised quickly enough or sincerely enough if you wronged or offended someone else. Uh, worry about whether you were there, uh, quite apart from the pro professional work you're doing in communities, thinking of your own role as a neighbour. Worry about whether you were there when someone, perhaps even a total stranger, needed your encouragement or support. The Australia that I dream of, and I hope you share the dream, uh, is a place characterised by compassion. A place where at every level of our society and in every department of life, we take it for granted that we treat even the people we disagree with most furiously with kindness and respect. And the process of getting to become that kind of society can only begin in one place. This is one of those things that doesn't start at the top. It starts at the bottom. 
It can only begin in local neighbourhoods where people like you are starting to make it happen. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the community's In Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes Store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.